Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. That also gives us more access. The, the doors, I have to say, the doors of the West Wing have been pretty open to reporters. The Obama White House liked to channel a lot of communication into email, which allowed them to sort of slow things down and give us these very carefully crafted anodyne statements about things. With the Trump White House, it's sort of the Wild West, and the message you get from them might depend on which senior administration official you happen to catch in the hallway at which particular time. Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about journalism and the people who make it. In studio today with me is Gregory Corti. He's the White House correspondent for USA Today. Welcome, Gregory. Hello. So, Wallace is say, you've had a pretty busy week. It has been, uh, I think I'd, it, it's, it's dangerous to make comparisons, but I was thinking this morning, really you'd have to go back to Bush versus Gore or 9-11 for the real old timers, maybe Watergate, to find a story as comparable to what we're going through right now. I don't want to compare this to Watergate or 9-11 per se, but but maybe it's more like Bush versus Gore, just in terms of the, the heightened political controversy just over the past first days of the Trump administration. So were you at all covering the campaign trail, or are you strictly on I, the White House? I actually was one of the few reporters that uh, stayed behind to cover President Obama until the, the very end. And what that means is that, you know, I was very busy the week before the inauguration, just covering all of the last minute executive actions that President Obama did. He, he granted a number of pardons and commutate. Boy, this seems like ancient history now. But remember Chelsea Manning? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> President Obama commuted Chelsea Manning sentences. And, and there were a number of other sort of last minute executive actions. And we went straight into the Trump administration. So for me, this week has been even more, uh, it caught me even more off guard because I'm still sort of, I know the White House, I know the geography of the White House, but I'm still getting to learn the, the, the new players because last Thursday there were a whole set of Obama people and now there's a completely different set of people. The Secret Service agents, they're the same. The stenographers, the White House stenography pool that, that writes down everything the president uh, says, they're the same. Everybody else is different. So have you been involved in a transition before? This is my first presidential transition. Okay, so you, but you, so you've been covering the Obama administration, and you, you alluded to the fact that you talked about uh, so, sort of the wrapping up end of the Obama administration. Tell me about what it was like covering Obama in this White House. You know, now that we see President Trump, I think I have a much clearer sense of what Obama was like, just by contrast. You know, President Obama was a very cerebral, analytical guy. He sort of set that tone down through the White House staff. There was a predictability in an orderly list to it that even affected the, the press operations so that you would not have a major policy announcement, an executive order of the kind that President Trump is signing every day without a little bit of a heads up, sometimes an, emb an embargo. That's when we get uh, reporters will get a little bit of a preview of the policy before it's formally announced. So we have time to digest it and understand it and explain it properly. We would have uh, backgrounder briefings with senior administration officials who would talk to us about this kind of stuff. A very sort of regimented sort of thing. And, and with President Trump, 
It's been much more fly by the seat of the pants, spontaneous. They're scheduling executive order signing ceremonies before they know what executive order the president is going to sign. And so what we're going through is not just a complete 180 degree shift in policy, but really a completely different style, even of how they deal with the press. So, and there's been much, much talk about it in the press that this is sort of almost a confrontational, I don't want to say almost a confrontational, a confrontational aspect toward the media. He's, he's called the media out is pretty much that they're out, to, I don't want to say they're out to get them, get him, but that they're in opposition to what he's, he's doing. They've called us the opposition party. Exactly right. So do you feel like you're the opposition? I mean, isn't that what journalists are supposed to be? They're supposed to hold the, the president to task for the policies that he makes? I'd say a couple of things about that. One is, you know, that all happens at a level that is kind of a strategic message from the White House. That is really a political message and I hope doesn't necessarily impact the relationship that reporters have day to day with the, with the, the White House. As a matter of fact, you know, think about this. They are going to reporters to tell reporters that reporters are the opposition. You know, they are using us as a foil, but at the same time, they are using us as the means to deliver that message, which is a sort of an awkward sort of position. But White House reporters, I know political reporters, you know, we're professionals. This isn't the first time that we've ever, if you've gotten to the White House beat, the odds are you've had a career where you've had to deal with some cantankerous politicians before and some hostile press secretaries. So I think, you know, we're professional enough that we can sort of separate that out of side and continue to do our jobs. But you talk about sort of the adversarial relationship. And, and one of the things that struck me is that you ever watch prime minister's questions? Yes. Yeah. So if somebody yells at the prime minister, why don't you do this? So I asked this question. Exactly. Here. So if you're ever up late on C, uh, watching C-SPAN on Wednesday night, late at night, they will rerun the prime minister's questions from the United Kingdom. And the prime, they have a different form of government. It's a parliamentary form of government so that the the prime minister is also a member of parliament and has to go to parliament to answer questions from other members of parliament, including members of his own party and the opposition party. We don't have that in the United States. We have a president who is disconnected. It's a separate branch from Congress. He doesn't have to go to Congress except once a year to deliver a State of the Union address. So what do we have that's like prime minister's questions? Well, I think a lot of people expect, for good reason, the White House press corps is the only institution that is at the White House every day that can ask those tough questions and push back. It's a different forum than prime minister's questions because we're not just there to challenge the assumptions, but also just to get collect basic facts. And what we've seen in the past week of the Trump administration is that they're playing this hurry up offense where before we can even collect the facts, they've moved on to a new executive order or a new policy that they're announcing. I think that's a deliberate strategy to try to keep us off our, our toes. I think, I think we're trying to keep up as, as best as we can. But you see it even in the press briefings with Sean Spicer, where the questions and answers are short questions with short answers. The long, multi-part, six-part, you know, analytical questions of the Obama era are over. They will cut you off at one question. And, and it's a different rhythm that we're still trying to get used to. You saw this in President Trump's press conference on Friday. It was an 18-minute press conference. Of, you know, a similar event in the Obama administration would have been three, four times that long. So... I think we're still sort of finding our legs underneath us as, you know, this Trump administration has really kind of kept coming with this blitz of executive action. This is the Trump modus operandi. We saw this in the campaign. Constantly on offense, never on defense. And 
we'll see how long they can sustain that that pace. It's funny. We were recording this on Sunday, which is traditionally when the NFL plays its its games, even though you know now we're in in that that lull before the, the Super Bowl. And you mentioned the uh, hurry up offense and the team that made the hurry up offense a huge and important weapon for them was the Buffalo Bills. And the team that beat them in the Super Bowl was the Washington Redskins. And how do they do it? They employ the hurry-up offense. So just saying. Uh, maybe that maybe the thing to do is, you know, what the media is do is like, you know, be confrontational, be in the face. You look at the history of the NFL, it's always, you know, people think of the NFL as this conservative kind of a sport, but it changes. Baseball is really the sport that is more or less timeless. The NFL changes every year. They change the rules every year. They change the tactics every year. And I think political journalism is a little bit like that. You know, we get these new tools of Twitter or Facebook, social media, the internet, politicians adjust to them, journalists adjust to them. And yeah, there, there is that sort of gamesmanship that is happening, just like, to use the sports analogy, the hurry up offense. Yeah, well, and you mentioned Twitter, and, and I've seen on social media, People who support Trump or who want to give him more time saying, well, I don't need the media. If I want to know what, what the truth is or what, what the story is, I'm going to get it from Trump himself via, via Twitter. And as a matter of fact, in the same room uh, for another podcast that I do, I interviewed uh, Richard Benedetto, who is a former uh, USA sure. Today a White House correspondent. Right, and he, he actually talked about the fact that for the first time in history, we actually know what the president is thinking moment to moment because he tweets out his thoughts. Now, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Does it circumvent the, the press? Who knows? Well, in one of the debates that we're having, uh, both inside of newsrooms, but also, you know, we're hearing it from the outside is people saying, why are you covering Trump's tweets? Why? That's a distraction. Why would you do that? There's He's doing so much more important stuff, but you chase the, the tweets. I think the answer to that is we have to do both. We have to cover both his tweets and the substance of his executive orders. But I think you're absolutely right. It gives us a an insight into the mind of the president of the United States and what he's thinking viscerally at three o'clock in the morning. And the fact that the leader of the free world is concerned with something that he just saw on cable TV or some story in the New York Times that he didn't like and that he has that sort of impulsiveness, that's a key part to understanding the Trump presidency. Yeah. And before we even turn on the mics, you were talking about the fact that just things are so quick and and that they're scheduling announcements or they, they make announcements about, you know, an executive uh, executive order coming out or a memo coming out. And they, they don't even tell you what it's about. And even something. Not, not only do they not tell us, they don't know oftentimes. We'll get these background briefings where senior administration officials will come out, you know, we'll go into their offices and say, so what's the president going to sign? Well, we think right now the plan is it's subject to change. He could sign something different, but we think this could be this. And this came up Thursday when there was all this talk based on Trump's tweets that uh, he was going to sign some kind of an executive order to order an investigation into voter fraud, which is this completely spurious claim that that the Democrats stole three thousand or three million, even three to five thousand is a would lot. Be a st- would be a story. We're talking yeah, yeah. about three to five. You know, look, voter fraud does happen. It's extremely rare. Nothing on the order of what President Trump is talking about. So the talk was he was going to sign an executive order on that. He still hasn't signed that executive order that got postponed to Friday, then to Saturday. He still hasn't signed it. He may have been talked out of it. But that's how sort of fly by the seat of the pants they are in 
just sort of figuring out what they're they're doing from day to day. Yeah, a big story for us here at Federal News Radio was the hiring freeze because you know we cover the federal bureaucracy and that's something that our that our readers are really concerned with. And what was problematic for uh, for us was there was sort of this announcement that he signed this thing, but there was no order. There's nothing that w- no no language that we could really report on. We could a lot initially it was you know Reuters said this or AP said this. And, it, you know, there was an announcement that he signed this document and it took us several hours before we actually saw that. And that's, you know, in the Obama administration, everything comes out. There's, as you said, there's this sort of pre, pre-briefing about it. And then you actually get the text of it. Well, there's a couple of things going on. One is that President Trump is signing all of these orders in very public ceremonies. So from that standpoint, we can't complain, right? There are especially the TV folks and the visual journalists, the still photographers, they want access to the president every day. They want to just see what he's doing. They, they want fresh video or photos of what the president did that day. So the fact that President Trump is giving us access to the Oval Office to cover these signing ceremonies is different. You know, President Obama would sign these in private. We wouldn't know they existed until they were released. He'd be by off the, on his way to Hawaii and, yeah, yeah, or playing well, golf. <laughs> well, I, I will tell you that there were times during the Obama administration where he would sign a bill on a Friday, get on a plane to Hawaii for vacation, and on Saturday we would find out what the bill said. <sighs> Or which I have a story about that. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I protested that, and I and I am you know have protested this issue with the executive orders. You're absolutely right. On Monday, President Trump signed an executive action. It's actually a, a presidential memorandum to reinstate the so-called Mexico City policy, which is the Reagan Bush policy to prohibit federal foreign aid money from being used to groups that support abortion overseas. President Trump signed this executive order. He said it's a Mexico City policy. Okay. So that's predictable because Republican presidents reinstate that policy. Democratic presidents rescind it. What we came to find out about eight hours later was that it wasn't just a restatement of the Mexico City policy. It was a, a vast expansion of it. It applies not just to family planning, but any kind of global health funds. Of the scale of the, the potential money we're talking about is exponential, the, the amount of, of money. Those are the kinds of details that matter. He signed 18 executive actions. I could give you 18 different examples of where once we actually saw what was in the executive order, it turned out to be a lot more complicated than what he had presented. Here's what we are resorting to. There are photographers taking pictures of these ceremonies. Trump loves these Oval Office signing ceremonies. I think that's part of it. It, it, They almost look like the celebrity apprentice, right? He's sitting in a desk and a bunch of aides are standing behind him while he takes action. But he will turn the he will sign them and then he will hold them up for the cameras. And so what we have have been doing in the White House briefing room is taking these wire photos and blowing them up as as big as we can to see if we can if it's in focus just right, we can read some of the operative language on these before they're actually released by the White House or post on the White House website. It presents an interesting problem for somebody who's covering this where you know announcement is made. And there's an eight-hour delay, and you have the news cycle where there's all the speculation, and there's all the you know everybody's tweeting out you know oh that he signed this order oh it's, it reflects this, but it, until you actually get the language, you don't have the the real story as to what it really means, and so you go through a, a, almost a, a, a news cycle where all is based on a speculation. You don't actually have the the concrete. And frankly, the news cycle may have moved on to other subjects. Exactly. Uh, while we're still waiting to figure out what the president did in the, in the previous news cycle. The first executive order that he signed on the Affordable Care Act, we're still trying to digest that. There was a lot of language in it that said things like, to the maximum extent permitted by law, 
we'll have to wait to see how that's actually implemented to really understand the the full impact of that. Now, this refugee executive order that he signed Friday night, that had an immediate impact on people who are on planes in the air about to arrive in the United States. And so, yeah, these look, these things matter. And again, we have to take them both literally and seriously. So and then that, that's a really good example of um, because part of what we do as journalists, it's not just a matter of us that we're reporting it. There's a whole aspect of analyzing it. OK, so this is what the language is. This is what it means. This is what historically we've seen these things happen. And that takes time. And that takes actually being formed, you know, about what, what the facts are. You, you can't debate or, or analyze something if you don't have the facts in front of you. So even just this thing that seems like, oh, we're taking our time to put the stuff up. I mean, that's actually can become problematic in covering a story and, and, and to the extent that it needs to be covered. Absolutely. I mean, the details matter. And this goes back to the conversation we're having about, you know, President Trump and his Twitter account. These issues are more complicated than 140 characters. And if you say that, well, I don't need the media because uh, President Trump is going to tweet all of this out, everything that I need to know, 140 characters at a time, I think you're, you're not, first of all, you're not getting the other side of the story, but also just, it's just not a medium that can really get the depth of these, the impact of these kinds of policies, 140 characters at a time. Yeah. And, and I don't want to necessarily give Obama a free pass just by comparison. There were things that Obama's, uh, the Obama administration had, had done that made it less than easy for us to sometimes do our jobs. You alluded to the fact that he would sign bills. There were several years in a row where, as a web editor, part of my job was, you know, as things came in, I would, I'd write them up. And several Augusts in a row, by the last day of August, the president is supposed to sign an order that impacts the, the pay of federal employees. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he would typically, and it usually seemed to happen on a Friday, typically send something out at six o'clock at night, which is too late for a lot of people, too late for us. And so I ended up having to stay late to, to deal with this. But there are other things where there were issues around uh, giving access to photographers to the White House. You know, there was a AP had sort of filed a protest against that, that the Obama White House felt it was okay to, oh, well, we've got a White House photographer. We'll just go ahead and let release those photos. The press doesn't need, need to cover this event. Yeah, USA Today is one of the newspaper, one of the news organizations that we have decided we will not use White House handout photographs. President Obama had a photographer, a fantastic yeah. photographer. Pete Souza is one of the best. And he's a, he's a great photojournalist. But when he's working for the President of the United States, his role is not as a journalist. It is part uh, to document history, but also part, frankly, I hope Pete's not listening. He would probably object this, but he's, he's part propagandist, right? I mean, it, his job is to put the president in the best well, light. And that's pretty much every presidential photographer. Sure, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's not taking of the photo, I mean, the photo is accurate, it's the editing of the photos and which photos don't get released. So I think it's far too early to judge the Obama and the Trump administrations side by side on their transparency, because in part it's going to, we have to wait at least 20 days to see how we respond <laughs> to FOIA requests under the law. But in some very sort of basic areas, you could make the argument that the Trump White House is more transparent on the things that... Maybe you say they don't matter as much. They're not substantive. They're very visual. He's using these press, these Oval Office pool sprays, is what we call them, as a, a messaging opportunity. But that also gives us more access. The, the doors, I have to say, the doors of the West Wing have been pretty open to reporters. The Obama White House liked to channel a lot of communication into email, which allowed them to sort of slow things down and give us these very carefully crafted anodyne statements about things. 
What's the Trump White House is it's sort of the Wild West. And the message you get from them might depend on which senior administration official you happen to catch in the hallway at which particular time. Reporters love, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's uh, that's where a lot of good stories come from. And the other thing in the Obama administration that, you know, I knew no journalists who were covering the bureaucracy who had problems with getting anybody to answer anything on the record about oh. anything. Oh, it was nearly impossible. And you talk about slowing down is, oh, well, could you please send an email? You send an email, you don't get a response back for days and days. And eventually they're like, well, we don't have anything to say about that. Or they give you a, a statement that doesn't really have any facts. It doesn't answer your questions. And, you know, oh, I'm not authorized to talk about that. And that has a, a stultifying effect on your ability to do your job. And then they turn around and they say, well, why don't you ever write anything positive about us? And it's like, well, why don't you talk to us? And then maybe we'll find positive stories. Yeah, we have a pretty, as USA Today, we have a pretty strict anonymous source policy. We'll use anonymous sources, but only to give us facts and not opinions. And uh, frankly, if there's an allegation being made on the record, you should be able to respond to it on the record. And there were a number of times when there were issues that came up. The Obama White House would give me a statement on background to a senior administration official. I'd ignore it because, first of all, it didn't tell me anything that I didn't already know. It was completely bland and not easily understood, and it didn't have somebody's name behind it. So I wouldn't use it. They'd call me up the next day saying, we gave you a statement. Why didn't you use it? Well, it wasn't on the record. You know what? <laughs> that's when I started to get people on the record because they started to understand that that's not how we play the game. Can we insist that every media outlet in this town adhere to those rules? It's never going to happen because there's all sorts of insider publications that thrive on that kind of off-the-record, anonymous source kind of material, some of which is really important, but some of which, which is as ephemeral as, you know, a five-minute news cycle. Right. That you, the fact that you have a high uh, official in a particular department telling you something, that that's a story for them, you know, and yeah. maybe, and you never know, and when it's off the record is how much they're spinning it and what you, what you can't get because you can't necessarily substantiate it with, with other people talking about it. Having said that, if anybody wants to leak documents yes. to me... I'm open for business. Let me ask you this. Do you guys have a, a secure leaking, you like know, a secure drop um, uh, setup? Uh, we do not have one of those sort of Dropbox kinds sure. of things. I'm working on, on uh, you know, I'm, I'm long overdue on this, but I'm working on setting up my you know, secure PGP email account, especially as we do more and more national security report, because, uh, you know, that a lot of what President Trump has done in these early days have, have big national security uh, implications. And, and we've to the extent that we've we've known what he was going to do, it's it's because some of the drafts of these executive orders were leaked before he even signed them. I was pretty surprised earlier this week that both um, I guess it was AP and and the Washington Post were actually soliciting from uh, people within the administration. Hey, if you've got something to leak to us, you know, here's our here's the way that you can do that securely. And maybe I shouldn't be surprised. But that being said, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts about all this stuff about the uh, Twitter accounts for the various agencies and the social media sort of being closed off? Let me go back to the, to the leaking okay, thing. Okay, feel free. The plain brown manila envelope still works very well. I just want to go on the record saying yeah, that. As, as a matter of fact, no, it, it, in some ways it's, it's better because there's no electronic signature that retain, you know, gets retained in the metadata of the document. There's less chance that somebody could figure out where it came from. And there have been times when I've gotten these documents in, you know, just plain envelopes that I don't even know where they come from. I can't report on them until I find a source who can confirm the authenticity of them. But that works just as well. And, and as a matter of fact, I think, you know, you talk to some of the top investigative journalists and they will tell you, 
in this sort of constant age of electronic surveillance, you know, we got to go back to meeting on park benches sometimes right. and parking garages. And, you know, that, that may what it be what it comes down to. And leave your leave your cell phone at home because you can be tracked by yeah, your well, cell yeah, phone. Yeah. The agency Twitter accounts. Or I should I guess to say transparency from the agency. Well, look, I, you know, I try to be balanced about this. The Trump administration does have the right to decide what its policies are and what its message is and to not allow agencies of the federal government to give inaccurate statements of Trump administration policy. Okay, I get that. You were talking about the hiring freeze. There's a certain number of things that every president does when they come in, a regulatory freeze, a hiring freeze. And now I think we're going to see this more often, this information freeze. In, in both the regulatory freeze and the hiring freeze are often until the cabinet, the, the Senate confirmed cabinet secretaries get there on the ground and then they can decide who they want to hire or what regulations they want to push forward. And I think we're going to see that with information too. Um, having said that, you know, there are whistleblower protection statutes. And any federal employee ought to uh, be protected if they're going to speak to Congress or speak to the press about issues of national concern uh, where there are problematic practices going on within the federal government. They also ought to be able to speak on their own free time and give their own sort of personal opinion. And I, I'd even go a step further. They ought to be able to just get basic facts. Yeah. It used to be, uh, you look like, you know, you've been around maybe a little while, and so you probably remember this, where you could pick up the phone and, and call up a government employee and just ask a basic fact and get a basic answer. That it's, it's amazing. You probably had this ex experience where you want an opinion in this town, you can call up any number in the you know, federal phone book and get an opinion, but just trying to find a basic fact yeah. is like pulling your hair out. And... Um, so, for example, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of an example from th this past week, but, uh, oh, for example, the Office of Management and Budget, which is uh, extremely important. It's where, where the rubber meets the road in terms of governing. It's between the White House and the agencies. Their website has not worked in nine days. Their phone system does not work. The number that used to be for the press office has been disconnected. The e you send an email to their email address, which used to be, I can give this out because um, it doesn't work anymore, but media at omb.eop.gov, that address doesn't work anymore. I can't get basic information about um, the functioning of our government because they've shut down the communications apparatus to deal with those sort of factual questions. And it's, it's extremely frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's something that, that we've been running into a lot and just, and this is none of the stuff we're trying to search for is particularly controversial by I think anybody's opinion. It's just basic information. We we spent a couple of days trying to track down executive orders, and there were no memos or executive orders. Nothing. There were no press releases posted on the, on on the White House um, uh, website for for days. No, it, it's uh, sometimes it's been uh, days later when uh, they're sent to the Federal Register um, because executive orders by law have to be published in the Federal Register. You have to wait until the official government printing press sort of gins up to to to, to print these things to you find out what's in them. So how did you how did you end up at the uh, the White House? What was your what was your career path? I had a I I think for most White House reporters and in Washington political reporters, I may have had a somewhat unconventional career path. I've spent most of my career 
covering city halls from Ohio. So uh, I covered city halls in um, uh, Norwalk, Ohio, Illyria, Ohio, uh, Akron, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, um, for, for most of my career. Um, and it, it's sort of, um, and that's sort of a lot of my approach to, to White House reporting is still um, based on that city hall career of just find the obscure agency in the, in the basement of, of city hall that nobody knows what it does or what it's been up to and, and look at that. And that's where you'll find the story. I, uh, I work for the Cincinnati Inquirer, which is a sister paper of USA Today. They're both owned by the Gannett company. Uh, they called me up in 2010 and said, um, Hey, we're looking for reporters. You want to come in and, and interview? I did. It, it, it was, uh, I was interviewed for either a job on the national desk or the Washington desk. Uh, it probably, based on my experience, the national desk probably might, would have made more sense, but they were more desperate on the Washington desk. So I covered Congress for four years um, and then uh, moved to the White House beat about three years ago. So it, is it covering the Congress that much different than covering the White House, or how is it different, I guess? It is um, because Congress is much more open because every member of Congress, if they're doing their jobs, has to vote. And in order to vote, they have to walk from an elevator to the chamber. And that's where reporters can stake them out and ask them a question. They, you know, some are better at asking, answering questions than others. You see them on TV, you know, John McCain is quick with a quote or a quip. Others, I won't mention any names, will just brush right past you in the hallway, blow right past you. Then you turn around, you, you, you're talking to a Republican, you turn around, there's a Democrat. So boom. You, you know, got your story. There you go, both sides of the story. The White House is, as we were talking about, especially under the Obama administration, a lot more sort of closed doors, more formal environment, uh, more formal ways of communicating. And it can get a little bit isolating to be in that bubble. And it forces you to use tools like the Freedom of Information Act, other sources of information. The White House actually puts out a lot of information that's hiding in plain sight. And so that's one of the things that I, one of the strategies I've tried to, to use over the past three years in the White House beat is to look in the Federal Register and to to look at the notices uh, that OMB puts on its website that doesn't exist right now. For every executive, we've been talking about executive orders. For every executive order, by law, the director of the Office of Management Budget has to put out a budgetary impact statement. We haven't seen those from the Trump White House because they just haven't been putting them out. But that, that gives you a little bit more context about what this executive order does. But you have to know where to look for it. Yeah. There aren't, they aren't always you know obvious places to look for these information. So on Capitol Hill, the news just sort of comes to you sometimes at the White House. You sort of have to go looking for it to get the story that's just underneath the surface. Yeah, you sort of use the bureaucracy that's in place to, you know, the multiple copies, the the notices, the things that they ha they're by law they're supposed to do. And knowing where to look is, is part, of the, part of the deal. So moving forward, what is your approach? What's your strategy for covering this White House? And it may change next no, week. No, I, I think it's a work in progress. I mean, my strategy in the short term is to try to get a little bit of sleep tonight. Um, <laughs> you know, I've no, I've been working for, and I, I'm not, look, I'm not expecting anybody to feel sorry for me. I signed up for this as my job, but I've been working for uh, 16 days straight, something like that. Sometimes some very long nights. And you came in to do a podcast. Yeah, I came on in Sunday. to do a podcast because it was a Sunday, and at least Sunday I had a little bit more time. You know, this is the first day of the Trump administration where he has a relatively light schedule. Mm -hmm. So, no, it's, it's, it has been difficult to 
to do the kinds of reporting that I, I like to do, which is to take that second day angle and really dig in deep because, uh, as, as we said, you know, we're, he's moving on to the next issue. There's also things that he's doing right now that we probably don't know about, may not know about for days or, or weeks or months. So I think at some point we're going to have to take a deep breath and figure out what this all means. To some extent, the approach that I took to the Obama administration is exactly the approach that I want to take in the Trump administration, which is to focus less on what the president says and more on what he does, to look at those hidden sources of information, to find the information that's hiding in plain sight about what's going on, to analyze it, to count it, to figure out what it means, to talk to a broader array of sources than just the White House and the West Wing, and to, to hopefully tell people something that they, they, didn't see, uh, they didn't know before or look at the presidency in new ways. So much of White House reporters about, uh, reporting is about covering the president. I also try to focus on the presidency. I mean, the presidency is an institution, and there are certain traditions and norms and practices that transcend Republicans and Democrats. One of the stories I think we're going to see in the this Trump administration is that a lot of those norms and traditions and practices are going out the window before our very eyes. Something as little as, since this is a journalism podcast, I'll say this, this is not the most important thing that the Trump White House has done, but it's something that reporters notice. Traditionally, at a White House briefing, the first question has always gone to the Associated Press. And I think there's there's been a sort of a good reason behind that tradition. The Associated Press is a news organization that represents the broadest array of news organizations in the country. So the questions that they have are probably the questions that a lot of people have. And under Obama, then it went from the Associated Press to Reuters, often to Bloomberg, a lot of the TV networks in the front row. This press secretary likes to start with the New York Post or LifeZet, which is a website run by Laura Ingram. There are a lot of conservative outlets. I give him credit. He goes around the room some conservative outlets, some mainstream outlets, some liberal outlets. But that's just a little difference in norms that, that's different. And that's just one small example of a, a lot of ways the presidency is changing before our very eyes. That President Trump is using executive orders, not only has he signed more of them, but he's using them in ways the previous presidents haven't. And I think that's going to take a little bit longer to digest and understand. But this is a very, very assertive an aggressive presidency in terms of its use of, of executive power, which is all the more noteworthy because this was a candidate for president who criticized President Obama for his overreaching and his use of executive power. That, I think, is one of the key stories going Yeah, through. and it's, it'll be interesting to see where Congress steps in in this. There seems to be, you know, Congress moves at its own speed. And, uh, you know, what is your thoughts about that? Well, you know, President Obama used executive action to get around Congress because he was a Democratic president with a Republican Congress for the past six years of his, of his presidency. And if he was going to get anything done, he needed to use executive action. This is a completely different thing because here we have a Republican president and a Republican Congress. He doesn't need to go around Congress. He's just too impatient, President Trump is, to wait for Congress. And so on the Affordable Care Act, Congress says it's going to repeal and replace it with something different. President Trump is, doesn't want to wait for that. He wants to sign an executive order. Again, we'll see exactly how that's implemented to see what it all means. But on immigration policy, on building, he's not waiting for appropriations from Congress to build the wall. He wants to build it right now. He's not waiting for Congress to pass comprehensive immigration reform. He's changing the rules of immigration right now, literally while people are still in the air coming to this country. So we'll see at one point there are already some people, some Republican members of Congress that are beginning to push back on some of these issues. We'll see how united the Republican Congress can be in, in adopting the, the Trump agenda. 
they may feel like they have two years and probably less to get all of this done before we get into another midterm election year. And there's, we saw this with Clinton where he lost a Democratic majority. The Bush, it took him six years, but he eventually lost the Republican majority and Obama only had two years of a Democratic majority. So I think if they look at the history books, they understand they only have a short window to get a lot passed with this particular Congress before the the political winds can change. Right, because the, the members of Congress are, are looking two years in advance and said, okay, you know, do I get behind this? Do I oppose it? You know, what's going to be the best thing for me in two years? I think, uh, and I've made this uh, argument in our newsroom, and I'm sure a lot of uh, newsrooms are, are thinking about this too. There's one of the key moments in this is going to be the President's Day weekend break where a lot of members of Congress go back to their districts and may have some time to do a town hall meeting or talk to constituents. And so what um, what they're hearing from their constituents about what's going on in Washington could really determine the tone of all of this going forward. You know, we saw this with, with Obama, with, you know, with the Recovery Act, the stimulus, and then finally the uh, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. It was when members of Congress went home to these town hall meetings that were packed with people who were angry about the expansion of the federal state as they saw it. That's when the political winds started to shift. And we may be, I think it's too early, but I think with the Women's March, I think the protests we're seeing this weekend. That was pretty amazing how quickly those protests happened last night. Yes. It was amazing. Um, Yeah. And so I I think if those protests become an organization, the likes of the Tea Party, Mm -hmm. then that, that backlash could fuel another swing of the pendulum back the other direction. How quickly and how vociferously that happens is, is yet to be determined. There, there will be some pushback, certainly. And the question is, how much uh, does this Trump White House listen to that, accommodate that, triangulate to that, moderate their policies because of that? Or do they continue to just say, look, the people that elected Trump, President Trump into the Oval Office, they were expecting a sort of set of policies. Those are the people we have to listen to. That's who we're going to deliver for. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think we all knew it was going to be interesting. We didn't know it was going to be this interesting this quickly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Gregor. This is this sure. has been great. Um, I'm going to look forward to reading your coverage of the in USA Today in the coming weeks and months. I appreciate that, and I hope everybody reads. It. If it's not USA Today, a lot of great newspapers out there. I think it's it's more important than ever to uh, to pay attention to what's going on and and to think about how journalism gets produced. And how important it is. Yeah. So and thank just, you for doing this podcast. Yeah. And just to add to that, to uh, support journalism. Absolutely. Um, uh, support, you know, support it with digital uh, subscriptions and and paying for the news that you're reading. I think that's a good thing. Because I think this is, if, if anything, the last two years of the election and uh, the, the beginning of the president have shown is that journalism still is important and we need to support it. It's always been important. Yeah. Oh, no, there, no. Are, yeah. There are times in history when we realize that more than others. Next time on It's All Journalism. It's of interest. There's, there is, you know, plenty of people have registered their opinions with the government about, you know, seeking to have Section 40 dropped. But, you know, the chattering classes in the UK, it's all about Brexit and Donald Trump, not about press freedom. In our next podcast, we talk to Drew Cullen, Editor-in-Chief of The Register, a British technology news site about a new legal threat to free press in Great Britain. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. 
Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.